you know, in business and in sports, you want to be you know, in the top. You want to you want to really be one of the few and really be out there setting the bar. That's not the case when it comes to disorder, disability, or syndrome. When you have a rare disease or, or a rare diagnosis, it can be isolating, it can be scary. And today I have with me somebody who's lived that, and not only lived it, but she started a whole movement around it. Jill Kiernan is the founder and executive director of Tatton Brown Raman Syndrome Community. TBRS, Tatton Brown Raman Syndrome, is a really rare disease caused by variants in the DNMT3A gene. That is the Delta November Mike Tango 3 Alpha gene, and it causes overgrowth. There are about 350 people diagnosed in the world, but there's no telling how many people have it and just haven't been diagnosed because it requires a genetic test to be diagnosed. And as Jill shared, oftentimes people may be misdiagnosed. Doing episodes like this, sharing episodes about rare diseases to raise awareness that they're out there and maybe they're not as rare as, as we think they are. There may be families out there struggling because they've never gotten a diagnosis. They don't know where to start. and. They don't really, maybe they don't have the resources to get genetic testing or never thought about getting genetic testing. Or maybe they, they thought it was too expensive, it would be out of reach, so they never bothered to look into it. If this is you or if it's somebody you know, I encourage you to look into it. Genetic testing has, pricing is coming down as more and more capacity and capability come up. It may not be as far out of reach as, as you used to think. I want to highlight again that the TBRS community is doing a summit at Morgan's Wonderland in Texas from 11 to 15 October in this year, 2023. And they are looking for sponsors, corporate sponsors. If you own a company or you work for a company that really believes in corporate sponsorship and supporting local communities and worldwide organizations, reach out to Jill. Her email is going to be in the show notes. For those of you that are new to this podcast, my name is Eric Jorgensen. I'm the host of the ABCs of Disability Planning podcast and the founder of True North Disability Planning. And I started both to make sure people with disabilities have equal access to the benefits, resources, and services that are, that are out there and that they may be eligible for. This podcast in particular was designed to help you learn about or learn more about an organization or person that is helping people across the country. And I have a wide variety of guests. You know, sometimes we talk about special needs trusts, other times like today, we're talking about rare diseases. So if you haven't yet, please consider hit and follow or subscribe in the podcast player that you're listening to this in. I do always appreciate emails with feedback. You can leave comments or reviews. I'm more interested in hearing from you directly. What did you like? What didn't you like? What would you like to hear more of? And if you know somebody who's going through something like this because they have a child who hasn't been able to get diagnosed, share the episode. Thanks for listening. Let's dive in. Welcome, everyone. Today I have with me Jill Kiernan. She is the executive director and founder of the Tatton Brown Raman Syndrome, which has only recently been diagnosed. And from the research I did, it looks like and Jill, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it looks like there's only about 250 people, is it in the United States or in the world, that currently have this diagnosis? 
worldwide, we know of about, we're up to about 350 people now worldwide who are diagnosed with TBRS, but there are a lot of people walking around with TBRS who don't know it and, and may never know it. So we're, we're doing a lot of work to try to increase awareness and genetic testing so more people can be identified. And, and this is probably a great intro to what is TBRS. You know, I brought you on because I'm, I'm always trying to help people raise awareness. And for especially for something like TBRS, that looks like it has a lot. It could have a constellation of symptoms where maybe somebody could be misdiagnosed or not diagnosed at all. And certainly, like you said, not diagnosed with TBRS because it requires a genetic test. But what is what is TBRS? What is it and how would people know what to look for? Sure. So Cattenbrun-Raman syndrome is a rare neurodevelopmental overgrowth syndrome. So people with TBRS are usually tall and often struggle with obesity and they have something called macrocephaly frequently, which means basically they have a large head. Almost 100% of people with TBRS are diagnosed with some intellectual disability from mild to severe. There's a real spectrum of how people are affected by TBRS. So an easy analogy is looking at the autism spectrum. Some people are verbal and more mildly affected, and some people are very severely affected. It's the same with TBRS. People with TBRS are, there's one study that shows that they have an increased risk of developing leukemia, and we might get into that a little more later when we talk about the gene, but they also, about half of our kids have had at least one seizure half of our uh, of our patients have been diagnosed with some kind of cardiac abnormality and many of our patients have been diagnosed with autism there's a lot of interest in the blood of people with TBRS because the gene that causes TBRS DNMT3A is a gene that also acquires mutations in the aging process that can lead to leukemia and cardiac disease. And so there's a lot of work looking into those links and then also with immunity. There's still so much that we don't know about Tatton-Brown-Raman syndrome. And a huge part of the phenotype of TBRS is mental health, behavioral, and psychiatric disorders. So we, we just are wrapping up our first data collection from our TBRS patient registry where we study the symptoms that are associated with TBRS. And what we've learned is that 83% of the people who filled out this patient registry report some mental health or behavioral diagnosis. So that's something we didn't realize. And then there are a lot of our patients have vision and hearing concerns, a lot of orthopedic issues like scoliosis and problems with their hypotonia, so low muscle tone and hypermobile joints. It's it's a really, it's a, a syndrome that affects almost every aspect of your life and of your body, both health and developmentally. So our families, you know, you think about if your child was diagnosed with autism or if your child was diagnosed with a cardiac issue, how upsetting that would be. And a lot of our families are dealing with having a child who's diagnosed with so many things all at once. So it's really, really impacts our patients and families. Thank you for all of that. Where would a family even start, right? I mean, do you mind talking about your your situation? 
you're you're but how, yeah. i mean maybe that i find stories make it easier for people to relate to instead of facts and figures and and maybe your story will help somebody who who's going through something similar say oh this is what i should be doing yeah definitely so my daughter avery i have two children my son aiden is almost 23 and my daughter avery is 19 now and avery has tbrs and it was a long diagnostic journey for us but not nearly as long as some of the families who find us but when she was an infant, right when she was born, I just felt like she's my younger child. I felt like something wasn't right. You know, my intuition was telling me something was off. She was really big. She was nine, 14, nine pounds, 14 ounces. The soles of her feet were touching when she was born and she just was really floppy. You know, she, she had hypotonia though. I didn't have those words at the time. And her head was large as she grew. She had problems with feeding. She, you know, choked and gagged a lot. And she just, she couldn't get her head up. She, I just knew something wasn't quite right. And at the time I didn't have a supportive pediatrician like I do now. We ended up going to a neurologist who told us that he felt that Avery could have a disease where she would be dead within two years. And that was, the, that was the right before Thanksgiving. I'll never forget that Thanksgiving. And then we went on to see a neurosurgeon and he got us on the right track. Avery, in fact, did not have the disease that this neurologist thought she had. We went through years of testing and misdiagnoses. She was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. Then she was finally diagnosed with SOTOS syndrome, which is another overgrowth syndrome. And we flew all the way to over Omaha, Nebraska to meet Dr. Bradley Schaefer and Dr. Trevor Cole, two of the leading specialists in SOTOS syndrome. We went to the conference and we sat down together. They took one look at Avery and they said, she does not have SOTOS syndrome. <laughs> so back then it was really hard to get genetic testing and they were, they do diagnose a lot of patients with SOTOS just clinically. So they said, she probably has another overgrowth syndrome that's not been identified yet. So fast forward to when Avery was 10, we had kind of given up. We fought with insurance on genetic testing. We, we sort of gave up and a lot of people were saying to us, oh, uh, diagnosis doesn't matter. You treat the symptoms. So that's what we did. Early intervention, all of the therapies, all of the doctor's appointments. Our geneticist at NYU at the time, Dr. Naomi Yehelovich and our genetic counselor, Ellen Moran, said, oh, there's a study in the UK. It's called the Childhood Overgrowth Study. And we'd like to enroll your family just to see if anything comes out of it. So my husband, Joe, and I gave our blood and Avery gave her blood. We forgot all about it. About a year later, we were at NYU for Avery's scoliosis appointment. She needed spinal fusion surgery. And we happened to walk by the genetic counselor and she was like, hey, we have something came up for Avery. Can you come back tomorrow? And so I went home and there was a huge blizzard. We live a couple hours north of New York City. We never made it at, into, they closed NYU the next day. So I was going crazy. And like, that was before COVID when everybody was used to virtual visits. So we had to reschedule our appointment. And in the meantime, I was searching the internet and found a paper that had just been published that came out of the study in the UK. And, and it was about DNMT3A overgrowth syndrome. And Avery, I could tell from reading the paper was one of the people in the study. And, and basically at that point, we just knew that having 
then named DNMT3A overgrowth syndrome, meant that you were tall, had intellectual disability, and had big eyebrows. <laughs> heavy horizontal eyebrows, it said. So yeah, so that was how Avery was diagnosed. She was 10 then, and that's kind of where the story started. I reached out to Dr. Chatton-Brown, and she was incredible and, and connected with slowly connected with other families and ended up starting the TBRS community. That's that's awesome. And, and good on you for sticking through it all. I mean, it's a lot for families to deal with. And it, it can be no no shame if you if you hadn't, if you had just said, I'm, I'm done, you know. Talk to me a little bit more for families that aren't as familiar, the role of a geneticist versus a genetic counselor. And, and how would you go about getting one one or both of those? Yeah, so I would say a genetic counselor does a lot of education for families. They do a lot of, in our experience, so I'm not, you know, a, an expert on the differences between, but Ellen Morian was our genetic counselor, and she really did a lot of the research to find this study. She provided a lot of answers to our questions. You know, before I mentioned that I was getting a lot of advice like, oh, it doesn't really matter what the overarching diagnosis is. So you just treat the symptoms. But I couldn't disagree with that more because it's really important to know there's important screening and surveillance that's required when you have a, a rare genetic syndrome. Usually, you know, there are things that you're more at risk for and you need screening. So a genetic counselor does a lot of that work with the family. And then the geneticist, you know, does the exam and, you know, continues to answer questions and provide a lot of details about, you know, what we're going to do for surveillance. And, but it's funny when you have a rare disease, it's kind of a little bit flipped. You know, I go into a lot of doctor's appointments where I can tell that they looked at the website that our team created to get the information to give us at the doctor's appointment. And then it slowly ends up being like, you know, can you tell us more about about your daughter's rare disease so we you know we know what to do from here so yeah but we i it was just luck that i had a genetic counselor and a geneticist that went above and beyond and found this study to enroll us in i i agree jill that is incredibly lucky and i i feel that more and more families may have access if they know to ask for it not necessarily to get you in, to get enrolled in in uh, you know studies and stuff, you know there are other places you can go to where you can look for research studies to volunteer for. Because I had done a podcast where where a woman had shared about how she got enrolled in studies, so I'll, I'll go back and make sure I share that in the notes. If somebody has a child and they they're struggling with a diagnosis or they got a diagnosis that just doesn't seem right or correct, mm -hmm. not that not that I want families out there second guessing their doctors, but. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes doctors just don't know and they're doing the best they can. Yeah. How or they you... made a diagnosis when the, all that information wasn't there yet, right. you know? Right. Yeah. So how how would they, would they ask their pediatrician or their primary care physician for a referral to a geneticist? How, how does a family get connected with a geneticist? Yeah, usually you'd ask your primary care doctor and, you know, list off what your concerns are. A lot of families come to us with that very question and, you know, hopefully you can get that referral to a geneticist easily. And now I feel that genetic testing is much more accessible and affordable and insurance is more apt to approve it. There are panels, there are gene panels. So for example, 
TBRS is the gene that causes TBRS, DNMT3A, is on the overgrowth panel. So there are a number of different neurodevelopmental overgrowth syndromes, as I mentioned, Soto syndrome, and that are all on this panel. So they can they can do a panel and screen that way, but also with whole exome sequencing, whole genome sequencing. They're also the genetic testing companies. If you don't have insurance or you're having trouble getting approval and your doctor is wanting you to have this testing, a lot of them have financial assistance, sliding scales. There are programs all over the place now to get genetic testing. And they'll also, you know, sort through, we all have genetic mutations, genetic variants, and some of them cause syndromes and some of them don't, and some of them don't cause anything problematic. So the, the genetic tests will kind of sort through and look at the variants that come up when they do your testing and and tell you whether or not that's pathogenic, likely pathogenic, a variant of unknown significance or benign. And, you know, then a genetic counselor comes in and helps you understand that report and gets you connected to the resources you need. Do you have a ballpark idea for how much a genetic test would cost? I mean, do you? Oh gosh, I don't, I don't know anymore. I mean, I, I think it used to be like when we were looking at it back when Avery was 10, I, I seem to remember like $8,000 or something. And, and now I feel like you can do at least a panel for under a thousand dollars, but don't quote me. I'm probably wrong. I haven't had to do it. In a lot, so. It would be a medical expense and they could use an able account or they could use, you know, they could, they could deduct the costs and taxes and, you know, they may be able right. to find grants or something from, from nonprofits or something. They would just have to do some homework. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting about our gene. So people with Tatton Brown Raman syndrome, you know, they, it's called, like with, uh, Dr. Tatton Brown has a great way of explaining this complicated stuff to families like myself. And I would say I'm not a scientist, so I've had to learn all of this, but she calls them spelling errors. And so there are lots of different spelling area errors along DNMT3A that can cause Tatton Brown Raman syndrome. And most people with Tatton Brown Raman syndrome have an error that's unique to them. There are a couple of hot spots on the gene where, like, R882 is a hot spot, and maybe 20 of our patients have that specific variant. But most of our patients have a variant that's unique to them, which causes a, an issue when we're trying to diagnose TBRS. So people are doing just what we just talked about. They're they're going to their primary care. Then they're getting a referral to the geneticist. They get the testing done. A variant comes up on DNMT3A and they have symptoms of Tatton Brown Raman syndrome. But because that variant has never been seen before and it's unique to them, it's classified as a VUS or a variant of unknown significance. And then a lot of people don't still, even though they've taken all those steps, they don't get the diagnosis. So we're doing a lot of outreach to the genetic testing companies to say, for the VUSs, still refer them to our community. We'll connect them with members of our medical and scientific advisory committee. We're funding research to clarify those VUSs so people get an accurate diagnosis. And so we can figure out which variants are, are disease causing. So it's not, it's, it's so much better than it used to be, but it's still not straightforward. Another issue is people, you know, adults 
aren't typically getting genetic testing. You know, they kind of, you know, their family might have done that when they were little and nothing came up. Also, as I mentioned before, Soto syndrome is a, an overgrowth syndrome that's very similar on paper to TBRS, but requires different surveillance and has, you know, a, a different, different medical needs than Soto syndrome. And when Avery was little, a lot of people were diagnosed as Sotos-like. So they looked like they had Soto syndrome and maybe didn't, couldn't do genetic testing or the genetic testing didn't reflect Sotos, but they still looked a lot like they had Sotos. So they called them Sotos-like. I feel like a lot of people who are diagnosed with Sotos-like could have Tatton-Brown-Raman syndrome, but they have found this community with Soto syndrome and, and, and that's really important. It's like you find your home in this community of people with this shared experience. Yeah. So there's, there's lots of work from different angles that we're doing to try to increase accurate diagnoses for people. And, but to do that, it takes money, right? I mean, funding a research study is not inexpensive. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So- and it, you know, raising money when there are only 300 to 350 people in the world who are diagnosed with this rare disease is tricky. So we, we do a lot of, you know, we started out super grassroots. Like I think our first fundraiser was a t-shirt fundraiser and Facebook fundraisers, things like that. And we grew rather quickly from a nonprofit organization that was about patient support and information. In the beginning, it was, it was really, you know, people will thank me and say, what a wonderful thing I did. And I said, it was really selfish. Like (laughs) I read that paper and I was like, oh my gosh, I was in education. I worked with people with disabilities for my career. And I knew that having a syndrome meant that you had medical issues that you needed to be screened for. And I needed to figure out what those were now for my daughter And so that's why I was so motivated to bring people together. And I'll never forget like meeting the first person with TBRS or talking with the first family with somebody affected by TBRS and, you know, comparing notes and figuring out what was and wasn't maybe associated with with TBRS. So like, has your kid had a seizure? Yeah, mine too. You know, like, okay. And, And then five more families came in and three of them had a seizure. So we're like, maybe that's associated. So anyway, so we grew from there to becoming expanding. We still do patient support and education, but we built a research network and that was sparked by getting a grant from the National Organization for Rare Disorders in really the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. And we started to build our collaborative research network. So basically we contacted anybody who had published on DNMT3A or TBRS. And we started to meet with them and say, you know, especially there are a lot of people interested in the gene because of its link to AML leukemia and because of its link to cardiac disease. And so we started to contact all those researchers and clinicians and say, hey, I'm not sure if you're aware, but there's a rare disease and your research might help our families and our our information, our patient data and our blood samples and our skin samples might help further cancer research and it might help further research into cardiac disease, research into autism. There, there are just a couple of papers where DNMT3A is connected with Alzheimer's. And so by investing in, you know, by donating to TBRS and our 
you know, ability to fund research and to provide tools and resources to researchers really doesn't just apply to our little community. It has a huge impact impact on our small community, but it applies to everybody. And, you know, you look at genetic therapies that, you know, gene editing and and once you learn that for a rare disease or any disease, it like a lot of what you learn applies to so many other diseases. So by supporting rare disease, you're you're making a huge impact on people who have kind of like been forgotten about in the like it's just parents who <laughs> who are like you know, getting the money together and fundraising and like becoming executive directors of rare disease organizations when that was not my career track, just because nobody else is going to do it. But supporting rare disease really does support everybody. And so we were really lucky to get the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative Rare is One Network grant and that we're about halfway through that now. And we're working really hard to build our fundraising strategy and and show people all the awesome things that our community is doing so we can keep that capacity the same and and continue to support our families and research and that's that's awesome jill and and from my point of view funding rare disease research in terms of gene editing makes a lot of sense right because one of the concerns that i've read about and and i would have about gene editing is unintended consequences Right. We, mm-hmm. If we know this is what these genes do, there's so many things we don't know. And then you have a rare disease that pops up that is, you know, affecting these genes in, in ways that we never, you know, never would have guessed or a mutation of a gene. Well, holy cow, this, this, you know, this has a cascading effect on other, you know, organs or other, you know, like the circulatory system with leukemia, you know, leukemia. Where's that coming from? And that gives scientists an opportunity to really explore what, what's being turned on and turned off, right? Yeah. So before they turn something off or turn something on, and then there's a cascading effect because, you know, human made because they, you know, unintended consequence. Well, now we can see, would it be mirroring TBRS maybe? Or would it be mirroring yeah. one of these other rare diseases? So I think it makes a lot of sense to fund these rare diseases, not in the, not necessarily because, oh, there's not enough, you know, there's not enough ROI for the amount of money we're putting in for the number of patients that are being affected. If you take a step back and say, okay, maybe directly affected in terms of TBRS has 350 people diagnosed worldwide. And I would argue that number is probably a lot bigger because of people yeah. who haven't been diagnosed. But what about, as you pointed out, all those people with seizure, you know, because although they cause seizures, TBRS is not a seizure disorder, but it could have something to do to help cut to, you know, to cause seizures. The intellectual disability, that's very telling, right? That's in and of itself pretty concerning. I mean, what is it about it that's causing intellectual disabilities? And for by the book, an intellectual disability is, is an IQ lower than 70 with marked difficulties and a lot of functional living. I'm not using the exact book definition, but for those that don't know what an intellectual disability is, it's it's basically an IQ number and the ability to do certain fun, certain things and you know every day. So how can people support you? You mentioned the grants, but grant writing is it's hard, right? And then you have yeah. there's a lot of things you have to do to there's there's almost as much work that goes into after you get the grant as there is asking for the grant, right? I mean, there, there, there's a lot of work. What about donations? Can corporations or, or individuals 
can they donate to you? Do you have do you have the capability to accept individual and corporate sponsors? We do. Our it's very easy to visit our website and it's tbrsyndrome.org. And there's a donate button right in the top right corner. We do have a really exciting event that's coming up that we're seeking sponsors for. It's called the TBRS Summit. And this is the first year that we are combining our family conference and our collaborative research network conference into one big event. And it's going to be at Morgan's Wonderland Camp in San Antonio, Texas which is another incredible nonprofit organization. And they're a sponsor to the TBRS Summit. And it's a camp where it's designed for ultra accessibility. So people with disabilities who use a wheelchair can still go on the zip line and, and on in, they have a, a whole separate water park. And so we're really excited about this location of our conference because it's so accessible for all of our attendees to participate in all of the activities. And the family conference and the scientific conference combined is, I feel, so important because in order for research to be effective and meaningful, the research agenda needs to be driven by our patients and the families. So we spend, we do a lot of work kind of talking to our patient community and knowing what's meaningful to them. If you had a magic wand and you could take away one of the symptoms of TBRS, what would it be? And feeding that information back to our scientific community is important because then they direct their science according to the our patient community's priorities. Because the ultimate goal is to develop a therapeutic option or a cure. And you know, to do that, you need to have usually need to have clinical trials. And you need people with the disease or with the syndrome to participate in the clinical trial. And if you develop a drug or a therapy that's not in their area of priority, they're not going to sign up to be a part of that clinical trial. And all of that work and money is going to be for nothing. So anyway, so in the most powerful way for our scientific community to, to learn about what's important to our families is to meet them. And so our, our main scientists and clinicians and researchers came together to our family conference. And the biggest message that I got back from them was how incredible it was for them to meet the families and meet people with TBRS and like fall in love with them and go back to work with their cells or with their mouse models and like have a whole new meaning and purpose and excitement for their work. And also, you know, this kind of magic happens where the families, like there's one great example at one of our first family conferences in New York. And a family in discussion was just like, oh, my, my kiddo is regressing and it's, it's heartbreaking. They used to be able to talk. They're not talking now. They used to be able to do all these things and, and they've lost that ability. Has anybody else experienced this? And three or four more hands went up in the room. And, and then, you know, the researchers were there to say, we had no idea that wasn't even like on our minds. We didn't know it was something that could be associated with the syndrome. Now we're going to go back to the lab and we're going to 
research that and you know and then the next step is to come up with a solution for that so so anyway we are looking for sponsors it's a a great opportunity to showcase your business by sponsoring us and and we have a whole sponsorship packet and everything so you can if you're interested in that you can email me my email is jill j-i-l-l at tbrsyndrome.org and or you can reach out through our website so i'm really excited about the summit this year we've grown our collaborative research network from a handful of scientists to over 220 scientists we'll have a virtual component as well so we're going to translate you know as you know we have a global community we have families all over the world who speak all different languages and it's so isolating to have such a rare disease we do our best to you know meet everybody where they are and with what language they speak so and that goes for scientists as well they can also participate virtually so we're hoping to have a nice big attendance there that's awesome jill and i'm going to include a link to morgan's wonderland for people that have never seen or heard of it it's an incredible park it, it, it is mm -hmm. incredible so when is the summit and when is the last call for sponsors? This is being recorded on in June, but it should air in late July, early August. So when is yeah. the summit? So the summit is October 11th to the 15th of 2023. And in order to properly thank sponsors, you know, we haven't actually come up with a cutoff date yet. I guess we should. <laughs> I'm thinking <laughs> we probably start printing things in august or early september and we will if you're a late sponsor we'll do our best to thank you in other ways too but yeah so we're really really excited and we're hoping that it's not hot you know what i hear in texas at that time of year it could be 95 degrees or it can be 60 degrees and and our kids actually don't handle the heat well a lot of our our patients have problems with temperature regulation and they they don't sweat or they can't regulate their temperature and they pass out in the heat and so we're hoping for like a nice 60 degree day <laughs> well fingers crossed i mean it will be october yeah. so fingers it's not going to be in the middle of summer you know I've, yeah I've, and there's I've lots of activities that you know we can do to keep cool that's yeah. that's the great thing about morgan's wonderland camp so this has been awesome i want to respect your time but you had alluded to something about leukemia, and I wanted to make sure we close the loop on that. The last couple of minutes, do you mind just touching on the leukemia piece? Yeah, sure. So I think I mentioned before that some rare diseases, when they're discovered, there's there might be nobody who's really interested in that gene in the scientific community. We were quote unquote lucky, I guess you could say, that DNMT3A was an interesting gene to the scientific community because one of the, the members of our scientific advisory committee, his name is Dr. Timothy Lay, and he is a professor at Washington University School of Medicine. He discovered the link between DNMT3A and AML leukemia. So mutations that are acquired with age on DNMT3A are a main driver of developing AML leukemia as an adult. Our kids are born with a mutation on DNMT3A. So what's really kind of a, a crazy coincidence, I mentioned Dr. Lay is at Washington University and there's a geneticist, Dr. Marwan Chinawi, who's also at Washington University. 
he diagnosed young boy with Tatton Brown Raman syndrome. And he was one of the first people along with my daughter to be diagnosed with Tatton Brown Raman syndrome. This young man's family, the dad worked at Washington University also. So <laughs> with all the consenting process and everything, and this family is very open and sharing their story. There's a news article about it and everything. So I mentioned before that scientists can learn so much from our kids because they were born with this mutation. So Dr. Shinawi put Dr. Lay in touch with this family. And, you know, since then, Dr. Lay has done a ton of research that's really helped to our kids and to AML leukemia research. And, and then the work on TBRS has expanded at Washington University. We have another member of our scientific advisory committee, Dr. Harrison Gable, who has a lab where he's really devoted to working on TBRS and to other overgrowth syndromes. So Dr. Lay has done some work on trying to figure out how being born with a DNMT3A mutation is going to affect our children and their risk for developing leukemia and other blood cancers and other cancers because overgrowth syndromes are commonly associated with a, a variety of cancers. So it's very early days, but he did publish a paper in blood about the increased risk of developing leukemia in TBRS patients. So, you know, we, we are, you know, I'm not a medical provider, but the basic advice that we hear is, is to talk to, make sure you're in contact with your primary care physician. And, you know, if there's any kind of bruising or a reduction in energy, or if your child or adult with TBRS looks pale, you know, something's changing, like don't hesitate, go right to the doctor, get a blood count, get a thorough exam. And that goes for any signs of malignancy. You know, somebody, there was just another paper published about melanoma, a case of melanoma with TBRS. And, you know, with su such a small population of people, we don't know, there are a few people who develop neuroblastoma. Is that linked with TBRS? So, it's just early days, so we just encourage families to not hesitate to go to the doctor if you're concerned about anything, because we're still learning, and we've learned so much in these past nine years, but there's so much more to learn, and we'll learn by communicating with each other and sharing our stories and being a strong patient advocacy group. Thank you, Jill, and the, the exciting thing to me is with the advance of AI, all these research papers that are being published for for TBRS and, and other rare diseases, the AI is going to be able to sift through them all and see if there's overlaps. We're humans. We can't do that. And I mm, think we're going yeah. to start finding some similarities between these diseases. And, you know, with that, more and more opportunities for funding, because now you're not just mm. funding for 350 people. Maybe you're funding for five different syndromes or diseases, mm -hmm. right? And, and that could affect hundreds or, or hundreds of thousands of people, right? And that's where I'm excited because the advance of you know, in AI and, and these other learning models, large language learning models, they're going to really be able to take all this information in a way that human beings can. Mm -hmm. You know, we, right. we scientists are very, and they almost have to be, they have blinders on for their area of focus. 
You know, there's mm -hmm. really nobody who's connecting the dots to say, hey, I study cancer. Hey, I study intellectual disabilities. Let's see how these things might correlate right. or and where the overlap what, is. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we've been trying to do as a research or uh, as a patient led research organization. So we, you know, take all these members of the scientific community who are studying different things. It's just happened this week, you know, like a biochemist was looking for a mouse model and we we're like, hey, we're going to connect you with these two different academic institutions where they have mouse models of TBRS that really recapitulate the phenotype of TBRS. So the mice have a lot of similar symptoms as the people who have TBRS. And, you know, there are, I think, over 20,000 FDA approved drugs sitting on shelves out there that might be approved for one indication, but could help hundreds of diseases, including our rare disease. And, you know, there's incredible technology now that we're trying to access that could say like, you know, this, this drug has an impact on the pathway that's affected in your rare disease. And we're doing things like developing research tools. So we have a, a patient biorepository where we can collect blood and tumor tissue, postmortem brain samples, anything basically as research tools. So we can start screening. We're developing IPSC lines so that you can screen drugs for repurposing. Again, I'm not a scientist, so I, I get a little nervous when I'm talking too sciencey, but <laughs> so we're we're doing a lot to try to have researchers who are working in silos and not communicate collaborate. We have a quarterly research roundtable meeting. We have our our summit, and then we have the data from our patient registry, the patient samples. We're looking to launch an EEG repository oh, wow. later this year. EEGs can be used as biomarkers. So you can see if a treatment is helping with seizures by comparing EEGs. So that's why we're collecting, we're going to be collecting EEGs. And this will be happening at our conference, the TBRS Summit. Dr. Sean Varghese, who is a neurologist in Texas, is going to be performing these EEGs for families who want, want to participate. And he's also just been amazing to our community. So there's a lot of exciting stuff happening. And yeah, and we're, it's terrifying as a parent to start Googling TBRS and DNMT3A and see the, the leukemia link and that we don't completely understand it yet, but we're doing the best we can as a patient organization to get all these questions answered and to get people diagnosed. And, and there's the whole aspect of supporting our families, you know, the biggest concern that our families have is their adult children and their their children have intellectual disability and mental health issues and behavioral concerns and their many people with TBRS need care for their whole life they won't they they may not live independently some people do but not everybody so we're also trying to address all of those needs in our patient community and we've got a lot of work to do and and any support is really helpful now, it sounds like you have a lot on your plate, Jill, and, and my hope for you guys is one, obviously, that I'm, I'm hoping listeners talk to your companies, talk to your organizations about corporate sponsorships for the summit. I understand what donors, you know, a lot of people donate when something's cute, you know, really near and dear to their heart. So it may not be as much of a calling from a personal level, but corporations are can always use 
you know, sponsorships that are going to greater good. And, and when you're funding research, you're not you're not helping just one or two families. You're helping generations of families. And you know, yeah. and again, the unintended consequence of of helping other diseases, you know, other organs. Exactly. So there's there's a lot of opportunity there to fund, especially when you're funding a research organization like TBRS Community. I do want to thank you and respect your time and thank you for joining me, Joe. I got a lot out of this. I, I'm hoping the listeners equally do so. You know, I, I think oftentimes there's people out there who have no clue what's going on with their kid. They don't know who to ask. They don't know where to start. They don't know where to look. And maybe it's not TBRS, but at least, the, you know, the conversation we had around genetic testing, it, it gives them a path forward. It gives them something to try, right? Right. Yeah. And I'm always amazed by just people who don't have a real personal connection to TBRS, but they see, you know, they hear that our kids are spending more time in doctor's appointments and therapy sessions than they are, you know, playing with other kids and and being kids and, and that as they grow older, it just gets more complicated. And, you know, and, and I'm always so inspired and like take those donations so I don't know they just hit me in my heart in a different way because it's like oh they believe in us they know that we have the tools and that that we just need their resources to like activate this awesome community that really make change and improve lives and I'm so grateful for people like that and it's it's not always easy work because we hear a lot of really we've lost members of our community who we know so well and love and and you know it's it's not easy work but it's I I get up every day like I need to really make a difference today and then the passion from our community is pretty incredible and and it's not just me there are so many we're we're mostly parent-led our board is 80 percent parents and each one of those parents and each one of our committee members and, and you know, even the, especially the families who fill out the surveys and donate their blood and, you know, do all of this while they're raising somebody with really complex medical and behavioral and intellectual concerns. It's just such a, an awesome community to be a part of the researchers and the clinicians just to give us so much hope and information. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, it's not where I pictured being when I was, you know, going to college and had a career and when it, my kids were little, but there are, there's a lot of beauty in this, this rare disease world and a lot of amazing people. Well, thank you for sharing your, your story, Jill, and thank you for coming on the podcast. It, it's, it's pretty awesome. It's, I really love what you're doing and I, I think it's, it's going to have an, a tremendous impact. And thank you for all the work you do and the tremendous impact you have in spreading awareness and connecting people with resources. And I know our partnership will continue after this discussion and, and I'm sure you'll be able to help some of our families as well with your incredible resource sharing skills. That was a lot of information in a short period of time. So I'm going to be including a lot of links in the show notes. You don't have to worry about trying to scramble to write things down. I will include those links to Morgan's Wonderland, TBRS community. Also, I'll include links to NORD, the National Organization of Rare Disorders. And I will include the link to the Child Neurology Foundation 
podcast that I, that I did a, a few months ago. So you can listen to that or look for the resources from them. I would love to hear back from you. What do you want to hear? What do you want more of? Do you want more of the practical tips for how to plan? Do you want more of what organizations are out there to support you? Or am I doing a pretty good mix of both? You know, it, it's, it's a, a rough world when you're navigating having a disability or having a child with a disability and trying to figure out the right things to do, the right order to do them in and not go bankrupt in the process. And I, I wanna to try to help you navigate that world. So if there's something that you feel you really could use more information about, please email me, eric at specialneedsnavigator.us and tell me, hey, I would like some information on dot, dot, dot. And I'll either reply to you in an email directly with a link with that information you're looking for, or maybe and I will seek out a professional to have them on the podcast. Some of these are challenging because it is hard to find really qualified professionals that I trust to bring on the podcast to give you the information, but I will do my best to find it if that's what you're looking for. Thanks for listening.